Welcome to the Cherry Hills Church Podcast. To help us set the tone for the year ahead, we're in a five-week teaching series on the spiritual practice of simplicity. A simple life may feel like loss, but is actually great gain. Thanks for joining us as we learn the way of Jesus together. I just want to give a warning before I get going this morning in the message that I'll be using the F word a couple of times today. And so if you don't want your kids or you don't want to hear the word frugality uh, for the next 30, 35 minutes, just be warned. I'm going to be using that word a little bit. Friends, listen, if you're just joining us, as was already mentioned, we are in week four of a five-week series that we started 2024 off with called Simplify. And in this series, we're simply looking at the spiritual discipline that's been practiced for over 2,000 years, including in the life of Jesus himself, the discipline of simplicity. And if you're following on your notes, here's what we've been learning together, that while simplicity feels like a loss, it is actually great gain. We've talked about in our first week about the myth of more and how we live in a culture where the advertising industry is trying to convince us that more stuff will make us happier. And yet research today, secular research, shows that's simply not true. The more we have, the worse off we get. Second week, we talked about how simplicity has to start right here in our heart. It all comes down to what I really desire. What am I desiring? What am I going after? And then last week, I hope you didn't miss it. If you did, go listen to it. Brian did a great job talking about how we simplify our digital intake, right? Technology is everywhere right now, and it's having such an effect on us. And then today, we're going to talk about how we simplify our stuff, Now, I mentioned some of these statistics a couple weeks ago, but I think they bear repeating. I talked about how, as the United States, we make up about 5% of the world's population, and yet, do you remember, we use over 25% of the world's resources. Today, Americans, not rich Americans, just regular Americans, have over 300,000 items of stuff in their houses, which is twice as much as just 50 years ago. We have a lot of stuff, and we keep getting more stuff. And the word for that is consumerism, right? We are consumers. We live in a consumeristic culture where we go after materialism, material things, believing that they're required for our happiness. But the question is, is it actually leading to more happiness? And we've talked about that a little bit already, but really, does it lead us somewhere where we don't want to go, is the question. Or here's how I'm going to put it today. Here's what I'd like to talk about with you today, if you're following on your notes. Do we own our stuff, or does our stuff own us? And to answer that, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible, if you brought one with you, and turn it to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 2. If you're just getting used to where things are in your Bible, you can find 1 Timothy almost near the back, probably about five-sixths of the way back in that Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along, we have Bibles in the seat right underneath you there. I'd love for you to grab one of those, pull that out. You can find this on page 962 of those black Bibles, and we say it every week, and we mean it every week. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, we would love nothing more than for you to take that Bible home with you today as our gift to you. Now, before we look at the text, you're going to have some time to turn there. I'm going to address a question first, which is, why do we buy so much stuff? Why do we buy so much stuff? Why have we been convinced that more and more stuff is what we need? Now, I've already talked about the happiness idea. We think it's going to make us happy. But each of us, if we're being real, have a different definition of what happiness is. 
So before I talk about what the Bible says about our stuff and how we should view it, we first have to examine our hearts again and go, what is the why behind the what? Why am I buying these things? Why do I long for so much stuff? And here's my ask for you. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Six reasons why I think we buy stuff. And I'm just going to ask you to be humble enough to open up your heart to the Lord right now and say, is this one of the reasons that I keep pursuing so much stuff? So first, the reason we buy so much stuff is that we have a longing for significance and love. Or you might put the word acceptance for love there, right? We buy stuff because we want to be noticed by others. We want to be accepted by others. We've got to have the latest and the greatest and the newest, right? We buy those new shoes that are popular now because we want to be noticed by others as also being popular. We want to have street cred, as the youngins say today, right? I know you don't actually say that, right? I'm too old to say that anymore. But this is the classic, we've got to keep up with the Joneses. And so we buy stuff in order to be noticed, to receive some sort of significance, some sort of affirmation from people outside of us to sort of boost our self-esteem. And stuff is one way we can do that. I own a Stanley cup. And if you don't know what that is, that's fine. But I'm trying to boost my street cred, right? I take that around and the high schoolers are like, oh, you got a Stanley cup. You're like, darn right I do, right? Boosting my street cred. That's one of the reasons we buy stuff, if you're you're being real. Another reason, number two there, is because of the fear of not having enough. Sometimes we just buy stuff because we're trying to convince ourselves, I can have some sort of sense of security with this. I'll never be without. This is especially true if you grew up in a family dynamic that experienced scarcity or poverty, right? Now, I didn't grow up in poverty. I grew up in a pretty lower middle-class mindset, though. Like, a big deal for us was to go out to McDonald's. Like, that was it, right? That was the big thing. And I've noticed that it's had an impact on my life where security is so important to me. In fact, one of the things I've noticed, and if this is you, maybe we can start a care group as well. But if there's ever something free offered, even if I don't need it, I am getting that. And it all comes back to this sort of scarcity mindset, right? That I'm not going to have enough. A third reason we buy stuff, let's just be honest, is pain management. Shopping can be an addiction. And any addiction, really what leads to that is sort of this idea where I'm going to cover up my pain. I'm going to cover up my fear, my anxiety, my deeper sadness and depression. We buy stuff to cover up our pain. Fourth reason we buy stuff is to invest in a future promise. What does that mean? Why do you buy a gym membership on January 1st? Why do you buy that new treadmill, right? Why do we buy these new clothes? We're investing in a future promise that I'm going to have a six-pack in a month. That my fellow students are going to notice my new clothes, my drip. Is that a good one? No? I give up. We buy this stuff with this promise that I'm going to be happier. And we talked about this in week one, right? This is exactly what advertising are selling us. They're not selling you a product. They're selling you a promise. And so we buy it and we buy the promise that we're going to be happier or cooler or whatever. And then number five, 
Let's be honest. Sometimes we're buying stuff because we're relieving boredom. Brian talked about this last week. We have lost our ability to be bored to death. And we have a computer in our pocket that is so easy to just grab, browse online, shop online. And sure enough, guess what? Whenever I do that, there's something I need. I need that. And then finally, we buy because of the fear of passing up a good deal. This is the fear of missing out, right? FOMO. This deal is so good. I can't pass it up. Look how much money I saved by buying this. Friends, listen. There will always be malls and online shopping and stores, and they are still making money off of that sale. I just promise you that, right? They're still not losing money on that incredible deal that we make. Now, I don't know if you resonate with any of those. I resonate with a few of them, to be honest. But if we want to stop being enslaved to our stuff, which is what can happen, then we've got to first name why we pursue stuff in the first place. We have to bring that to light. And so if you've resonated with that, just sort of be like, okay, I can see the deeper why behind why I pursue all of these things. Now we can move forward. What do we do about it? And that's what God's word is going to talk about today in 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. What does Paul say about our stuff? I'm glad nobody caught that. Great. (laughs) We pick it up in the second part of verse 2, which says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. And the things Paul is referring to is what he just wrote about, which is how the church is to take care of widows and slaves. There was no social security back in these days, right? There was no government help for the poor. And so the churches was responsible for this. They were responsible to take care of the people in their community. And so Paul says, listen, these things you've got to teach. You've got to teach the churches about that. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Arrogance and ignorance often go together, right? I'm tempted to make a comment about politics right now, but I will refrain. They, these false teachers, have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Can that happen today? People use Jesus for financial gain, sadly. Now, I want you to notice, as we head into verses 6 through 10, Paul is going to make six statements about the reality of stuff, of money, of things we accumulate. These are not commands. He is simply talking about the reality of these things. And the main question for us to consider today is, do I believe what the Bible says about this? I mean, do I trust what Paul is about to say about the pursuit of stuff? So let's start looking in verse 6 where he writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now you notice this is where we got our series sentence from maybe, right? We think it's lost, but it's actually great gain. And Paul is brilliant here. He is doing a little pun based on verse 5 about how people think godliness is a means to great gain. And for them, it's a gain of financial financial, whatever, 
More, more financial stuff. They use Jesus to get more stuff. This is alive and well today in the prosperity gospel, right? Using Jesus for financial gain. And Paul is playing on that with a pun by saying, actually, the great gain is more godliness. When you pursue Christ, the greater gain is not finances. It is more godliness, a real deep sense, he says, of contentment, of gratitude and peace and joy in your life. So that's one statement he makes. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. This sounds a lot like Jesus. We were born with nothing and we're going to leave with nothing. Everything I own right now is going to end up in a dumpster somewhere. We brought nothing into the world. You can't take anything out of it. All we will carry, here's the thing, all we're going to carry into eternity is our relationships. Your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with others. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Are we? It reminds me what Paul famously said. We know these verses. Sometimes they're taken out of context in Philippians 4, where he wrote, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, Now, would you read that last part with me out loud? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What is the context of that verse? A football field? No, of course not. It's within this idea of stuff. And he's saying, I've experienced a lot. I've experienced little. But contentment ultimately comes simply from my relationship with Christ. That's where you will find peace. Now, read verse 9 out loud with me on your notes there. It says... Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's a big heavy statement uh, right there. Not only, as we learned in week one, does more stuff not satisfy us, but Paul also says it's going to lead us astray. It could do potential long-term damage to our souls. Verse 10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This, again, sometimes get misquoted. It doesn't say money is the root of evil, right? It says the love of money. Making money and stuff, our God, our ultimate pursuit, can lead to all kinds of evil. Like what? Well, some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I can say as a pastor for almost 22 years, I've seen this happen, where the pursuit of more money, more hobbies, more activities for our kids, more, 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 can eventually drift someone away from a central relationship with Jesus. Verse 11, Paul shifts here, but you, man of God, Timothy, flee from all of this. Literally, go the opposite direction. And what direction is that? He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is another verse we're so familiar with, but think of the context here. It's not even talking about suffering. He's talking about this demand the world has over us to accumulate more and more stuff. And he says to Timothy and to us, you got to fight that. You got to fight that urge, flee from that, what the world says, and run towards godliness. 
and peace and love and joy and righteousness. That way we take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What command? Fight the good fight of the faith, to flee from those things, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. I'm going to be honest here. When I first knew I was going to do this passage, I almost cut that whole section out because I was like, that feels like a bit of a tangent. But it actually isn't a tangent. Paul's not going on to a new subject here. It's all one flowing thought where he's saying, Timothy, church, run away from consumerism and materialism and run instead towards eternal life. And then he just spent six verses describing exactly what it cost Jesus to give us that. The one who laid down his life for you, the king immortal, run towards him. Run towards him instead because that is the only place you will ultimately find peace and joy and comfort. And I will remind you when the Bible uses the word eternal life, stop thinking about heaven. It is part of that. But it's the life here and now that Jesus came to give to you, to me. The life where he says, I have come to give you abundant life, full life, a content life, a joyful life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life. Run away from the life that will lead you away from that. And instead, run towards me, and what you will find is eternal life. And with all that being said, Paul now gives us some commands. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, these are commands for us. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can just listen to these and decide for yourself whether you want to follow them or not. But let's start by reading verse 17 out loud on our notes together, where Paul says... Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I'll continue and finish. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Again, that last line is not written for the future tense. It's about the present and the future, the life that is truly life. Now, I see six commands in just those three verses that he gives to Christians who are rich in the present world so that we don't have to worry about it, right? Uh, We do. Because the truth is, 99% of us in this room are rich in the present world. So here are six commands he gives to us. The first command is, don't be arrogant. What does he mean there? Well, let's be real. Wealth can lead to pride. It can lead to this sense of autonomy and self-sufficiency. I don't need you, Lord. It can lead to the oppositeness of gratitude and humility where I depend on him for everything that I have. Like we looked in the first week of this series in Luke 12, this guy who had more and more stuff and kept building bigger barns to keep it all in, right? What does God say to him? You fool. You've become so arrogant, you don't even realize your life is coming to an end. Number two, 
We're commanded not to put our hope in stuff because it is fleeting. Look, if we think money or things or success in our career is going to make me feel secure and safe and content, think again. It can be gone like that. We learned this lesson as a country in 2008, right, when the recession hit. We were comfortable. We had amazing savings accounts and all these things, and yet it was gone in a flash. Don't put your hope in something that can't promise or deliver. Number three, I love this one. This is a positive command. Enjoy stuff as a gift from a generous father. Good news here. The Bible's not down on joy and pleasure, on a good meal, on friendships, on vacations, on clothes. Jesus, in fact, was criticized for enjoying life a little too much. Did you know that? But we can't make that our end goal. I'm going to talk more about that at the end. Number four, the command is to be generous with your time. Paul said we are to do good, to be rich in good deeds. He's not talking about money right there. He's talking about how we're going to decide to use the life that God has given us. Am I going to use my time to pursue more and more stuff? Or am I going to use my time to serve other people like Jesus served me? Number five, now he says, be generous with your money. We are to be generous and willing to share, he writes. As a follower of Jesus, one of the most important things to come to terms with is everything that we own belongs to him. It's all his. Everything he's given me. God is the owner, and I am his steward. Right? I steward what he has given me. So part of that means to be generous with the, my money. Number six, this is another positive command. He's like, hey, I want to give you the opportunity to lay up treasures that will last for eternity. Spend your life investing in people. Because those are the only eternal things. People and your relationship with God. And so, listen, if I could just sum this passage up, I'm going to give one observation and one promise, and then we're going to break down the promise. Number one, here's my observation. All six of those require simplicity. They require us to simplify our lives. The promise, believe it or not, this is the, where the rubber hits the road for you today, for me today. His promise is that that is what will lead to contentment. That is what's going to lead to joy. The world will tell you differently. Our culture is going to tell us differently. The scriptures, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, here is how you will find contentment with stuff. And so as I close today, or get ready to close, I'm going to say that twice, probably. You know how we do that. Let's get practical. How do we implement simplicity with the belief that it will actually bring us to contentment? Now, just as a reminder, here's the definition of simplicity we've been using in this series. Simplicity is the intentional promotion of the things we most value. You've got to decide what those are. And the removal of anything that distracts us from them. Do I most value what Paul writes to Timothy here? Godliness, contentment, joy, other people, serving giving myself fully to his mission, whatever, right? Are those the things I really most value? And if I do, I've got to remove the stuff that's going to keep me from going after those things. So three ways that we can value simplicity and move towards contentment. Number one, limit how much you own. 
We live in a culture that is anti-limit today. But God's wisdom for us in this text is instead of always asking, how can I get more? We should be asking, how can I live with less? How can I live with less? And the word for this is that F word, frugality. Limit how much I own by practicing frugality. Frugality was ultimately what can cultivate a heart for contentment here. Can I just talk about that word for a minute? Let's be real. What do you think of when you think of the word frugality? Ebenezer Scrooge? Penny pinchers? Bargain hunters? It's a negative word in our culture today, which is fascinating to me because the history of the word in the church, it comes from Latin, which means fruitfulness and joyfulness. That is the root of the word frugality. And yet today, we think of it as being a miser, a, a poor sport, being someone who doesn't want to have any fun in life. Frugality is something the church has practiced for over 2,000 years. And for them, it was always spiritual. It was a path to real joy. And it believes starts with this belief that the best stuff of life, the best stuff that this life offers us is not in what we have, but in who we know. It's in the people that we have in our lives, and it's in the Lord who came down to be a part of our lives. I love what John Jansen says about this. Jan Johnson says, I mentioned her, I think, earlier. If I could recommend a book, I would recommend her book, Abundant Simplicity, if God is working on your heart in this series. Here's what she says about frugality. I like this. Practicing frugality does not give us something extra to do, but guides decisions we already make. As we shed excess possessions, we have more time and energy to spend on things we deem important. Hanging out with God, paying attention to people. That's a good one with the phones today, right? Are you listening to me? And serving in adventurous ways that previously took a back seat. It becomes easier to share money and possessions with joy. As followers of Christ, we commit ourselves to continually raising our standard of loving rather than our standard of living. I love that line. Practicing frugality helps me say, okay, how can I love more instead of get more? Another benefit of frugality I see in this text is that frugality forms character and humility. By practicing frugality, that's a very practical way of fleeing, as Paul told Timothy to do, and pursuing godliness and righteousness and holiness and contentment and joy. It trains me to be satisfied that I don't always need what I want. Second way we can guide our hearts towards contentment and simplicity that I see in our text is to enjoy the simple things of life. You may even want to add to that more at the end. Enjoy the simple things of life more. We did a series in Ecclesiastes several years ago. If you don't know Ecclesiastes, it's written by King Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, who was supposedly also the wisest man who ever lived. And he decided he was going to go after everything this world had to offer. I mean, can you imagine having that much money where you can go, okay, this, they tell me this is what's going to make me happy. I'm going for it. And he did. He went after everything. And at the end of it all, this book is so depressing. He's like, it's all meaningless. And one of the conclusions he comes to at the end, I have on your notes there from Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9. Would you read that with me? Here's one of his conclusions about life. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. It's not profound, but it's profound. 
The secret of contentment for you and for me is to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. Enjoy what God has already given you instead of always pursuing that next thing. So that could mean you find more joy in your work. Find more joy in your relationships. Find more joy in sharing a meal with somebody. Find more joy in a sunset, in a sunrise. I personally wouldn't find joy in that, but maybe that's your thing. Find more joy in doing a game night with your family instead of being on your phones. In a quiet morning, in your pet, in your garden, in your hobbies, in nature. It's just a matter of seeing every moment that we have been given as a gift to us from God. Scientists describe the process of how we get to this as mindfulness. So often I go throughout my day mindlessly. But if we can start to learn mindfulness... We can start to experience joy in the everyday pleasures of life. I've been doing this with my morning cup of coffee. Normally, it's just like, right? But I've been trying to like, ah, that smells good. Mm, I'm looking forward to this. I take my time when I'm doing my pour over. I take that first sip, and I really kind of try to taste the flavors, right? That is how you can start to enjoy the ordinary pleasures of life. Sadly, our culture gets this backwards, though, and I'm tempted to do this. I can start making those pleasures the meaning of life, the goal of life, right? I worship the gifts instead of the one who has given me those gifts. Or if you're following on your notes, one of the problems come when we worship the gifts instead of the giver. The good news is that God has given us this world rich with many gifts, But listen, the power to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves because you'll always need more and more and more and more. You can't find contentment there. Contentment will be found when we learn to enjoy the gifts that God has already given to us and remember and thank him for them. Don't worship the gifts. We worship the giver. And then the third thing is to continue to grow in generosity talked about this two weeks ago. I can't emphasize this enough. If we want to find contentment, it requires learning how to open our hands more and to give ourselves away more. And that's because if you're following again, giving is Jesus' antidote to greed. Every step we take towards being more generous is a step we take to no longer being enslaved to what the world tells us is important. I've mentioned some of this before. Just listen to some of the benefits of generosity. It can deepen your trust in God's provision for you. It can deepen your love for him. It can cultivate a spirit of gratitude, a deep sense of enjoyment. It can make ordinary pleasures more enjoyable. It puts money in the right place in our hearts. It makes the world a more just place. Secular research has even shown, I talked about this two weeks ago, Generosity is, will, will, is exactly what will make you happier in the long term. But here's the truth I've come to realize, right? The more stuff I have, the harder it is to be generous. Can I get an amen to that? You, you believe that? When I decided I was going to tithe, I was in college. I made two to $300 a month. So 20 bucks for a college kid, that's two, three, four Taco Bell visits, right? It was, it was a big deal. But now that I'm making two to three million dollars a month, <laughs> I'm joking, but you, you get it, right? The, the more you start to make, the harder actually it becomes to be generous. 
because we're feeling like we're losing more. I'm losing more the more I have. And this is why, just like simplicity, generosity is also called the spiritual discipline. It requires discipline. Jesus knew how hard it would be for me to let things go, but his promises to me is this. I'm telling you, Steve, you will find more contentment by giving things away than you will by accumulating them. And if you believe that, again, rubber meets the road. You either believe that or you don't. If you do, I'm going to just quickly run through seven ways. These are not original to me to grow in generosity. Number one, start small. Don't feel guilt or shame or pressure right now. Giving is to be something done out of a heart that wants to give. Sometimes I think of like, there's so many starving kids in the world. What can I possibly do? Don't think like that, right? Think about how could I help one person through generosity? That is all I can do. Number two, give first. The term the Bible uses for this is called give the God the first fruits. Today, we don't live in an agricultural society, right? So that would simply mean when you get your paycheck, give whatever you've determined to give. That's up to you. First, right? Give first. Three, divert one specific expense to generosity. For example, maybe you want to lower your eating out budget. Maybe you want to cancel Disney Plus. You better run that by the kids first. Maybe you want to spend less on Christmas gifts this year and then just say, we're going to take that same amount we were going to use for that and divert that somewhere else. Number four, give something, give to something you care about, but pay special attention to the poor and to the church. There are lots of good causes out there. I have no problem with any of them, but from the beginning to the end of scripture, God had a heart for the poor. He has a heart for the poor and he has a heart for his church. And I know what you're thinking. He's the pastor. He's got to say that. I'm just telling you, this is what I've determined in my own heart as well, right? If you can, number five, tithe. New Testament doesn't teach you have to tithe, but most followers of Jesus throughout history have argued that is nothing other than a small floor. Again, if you're not there, that's okay. That's fine. Start small. Number six, if you already tithe, consider a graduated tithe. In other words, the more we start earning, when you answer that question, is this enough? This is enough for us. What if you started giving more away to that? And again, I'm not just talking about the church here. I know a guy right now who lives on 40% of his income and gives away the other 60%. As Jan Johnson said, let's raise our standard of loving, not our standard of living all the time. Number seven, pay attention to what happens in your heart. Here's what's gonna happen. At first, you're gonna be like, this sucks. I hate this. At least for me as a scarcity person, that's how it felt. Like, I really like Taco Bell. But over time, over time, what begins to happen is you'll start to grow more joyful. You'll look forward to giving. You'll see it more as an opportunity than a burden. As Jesus promised, it's more blessed to give than receive. As you grow in generosity, And I've still got a lot of growth to do. I believe you will find that to be true. Now, as we close, I just want to remind you, all of that, everything I've said today is just an invitation. There's no guilt or shame or pressure here, as I've already said before. This is just an invitation to take a step towards simplicity, trusting that Jesus promises right, that that will lead you to contentment. 
And so as we've done throughout this series, we created a, I've created a, a practice guide for us this week to pursue this. You can grab one of those on your way out of the church this morning. But really, here's the idea. I'm just giving you some practices to help you learn to enjoy ordinary pleasures of life, to set limits, and to practice generosity. These are not rules. These are invitations to put Jesus' promise of contentment to the test. And that's really the key to this whole thing. Here's the question I'm ending today with. Will I trust or do I trust God's word when it comes to finding contentment? You might be here today and have hated everything I've said. I hate everything I've said at times, right? This is hard. Because it doesn't seem true. The world says it's not true. More stuff is really where I'm going to find contentment. But it ultimately comes down, if you're a follower of Jesus, am I going to trust what the Bible, what Jesus, what Paul says about that and pursue, flee from that and pursue the things he calls me to pursue? So what are you going to do about it? Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.